Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. A very warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us on a Some Like It Hot, Others Definitely Do Not edition of the program. And I'm not just talking about the weather. The ECB set to raise interest rates as blistering inflation continues to grip. Big tech earnings on tap. Can Netflix write the subscription ship? Twitter wants a Warp Street trial. Musk wants the date to slip. And the historic UK heatwave, a challenge for the British stiff upper lip. Barely. More on the European heatwave shortly. For now, is steamy day on global markets too as investors add to Friday's strong gains. U.S. futures, as you can see, relatively fiery and a scorcher of a day across European stock market bourses too after a red-hot Asian handoff. The Hang Seng rising almost 3%. Why? Well, investors seem to be taking solace from fresh U.S. consumer sentiment numbers, inflation expectations dropping to their lowest level in a year this month as petrol prices come off the boil, a positive portent for Powell and company as they prep for next week's policy meeting. Fed members attempting to take the heat out of recent speculation, too, that they may raise interest rates by a full percentage point next week. Markets now pricing in a relatively cooler, three quarters of a percentage point rise instead. Now, major U.S. banks watching the macro outlook very closely and benefiting from rate hikes, but the investment banking performance is consistently bad. Bank of America missing profit estimates today, seeing a 34% earnings drop compared to last year. Goldman Sachs, however, beating on both the top and bottom lines with its trading desks on fire amid the recent volatility. The financial profits less than torrid, but not quite horrid. Details later in the show. But first, a wicked weather watch. The UK issuing its first ever red warning with an 80% chance of setting a record high temperature. The mercury could reach 40 degrees Celsius for the first time ever. Scorching temperatures also fueling wildfires in France, Spain and Portugal. At least 16,000 people have been evacuated in France. And over in China, also sweltering as more than 80 cities across the country issue the second highest warning. And here in the United States, over 40 million people are under heat alerts as we speak. Nada Bashir joins us now from London's Hyde Park. Today could be the hottest day ever recorded in England, Nada, and tomorrow could be even hotter. Yep, that's what the message we're hearing from the UK's Met Office. A sweltering day. It is just 2 p.m. here in London and we are really feeling the heat now here in Hyde Park in the capital. As you can see behind me, uh, the park has drawn many people to come out and enjoy the sunshine. Uh, many behind me sunbathing, taking advantage of the hotter weather. But as you mentioned there, uh, temperatures are projected to peak at around 40 degrees Celsius. That's around 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Real extreme temperatures here in London, potentially record-breaking historic figures. So there are uh, certainly some concerns around the health uh, risk that that could pose. But despite this, 
Uh, many are still flocking to the park and, and nearby riversides to enjoy the sunshine. We spoke to a couple of people uh, a little earlier who said that despite the hot weather, they will uh, continue with their plans for today to enjoy the weather. Take a listen. Worried about the train being cancelled. My train's already cancelled, so I've got to try and get on a different one and hope that it's not packed out. Um, hope for the aircon. Well, we were going to go to the Lido, but it, the queue is massive and we were too hot stood in the sun, so we changed our mind. We're just going to head home earlier rather than chilling out for a bit. I'm from America, <laughs> so I'm used to air conditioning, so a little. We'll be alright. Well, we spent some time indoors at the DNA Museum, and we're just here for like five minutes to see the Diana Memorial. Uh, we've already had one ice cream. I think we're Four more to go. We are trying, trying to limit our time out in the sun, so trying to stay indoors as much as possible. But we planned our vacation several months ago, so we also want to see a little bit of London. Now, Julia, the government has been issuing guidance and advisory notices around how to enjoy the day but continue to stay safe. We saw over the weekend the government chairing an emergency meeting to discuss the country's preparedness for this kind of weather. The infrastructure in the UK, of course, not really built for 40 degrees or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. But we are hearing from the government that they are working to ensure that hospitals and ambulances are well staffed in order to deal with potential health risks associated with the high temperatures. We are already seeing the effects of this on the national rail service which has seen significant delays and issues there so clearly uh, the country is struggling with this but we heard from a British minister speaking earlier Kit Malthouse who has been overseeing the country's preparedness uh, and contingency plans to deal with the heat he said that this is something that the country is going to have to learn to deal with as projections show that the temperatures in the UK and across Europe of course will continue to rise as uh, the globe continues to warm. It's such a great point. I mean, let's be clear, Great Britain was not built for this. Roads melting, railway tracks buckling, uh, a lack of air con, limiting productivity in offices and, and schools if, if people are still attending them. Um, it's tough. And to your point, and that point that you made there, I think it's vitally important. What we can't ignore is that they're becoming more fierce and they're becoming more frequent. To what extent is this being in some way tied to climate change? Nada. Well, look, that is what we're hearing from uh, experts. This is certainly tied to climate change. That the global temperatures are warming, and this is having a significant impact on temperatures uh, as we are seeing today. As you mentioned, that we've seen significant wildfires spreading across parts of Europe and France, in Spain, in Portugal as well. And really, governments trying to grapple with these fires that are getting seemingly worse and worse every year. We've seen thousands of hectares of land uh, in the southern parts of Europe destroyed, thousands forced to leave their homes and evacuate as a result of these wildfires and this is having significant health side effects as well we're seeing that here in the UK where there are concerns around whether or not the National Health Service and these ambulances are really prepared to deal with the effects of this as temperatures do continue to increase we've heard from researchers from the European Commission speaking today uh, saying that nearly half of territory in Europe uh, could be experiencing, experiencing drought uh, over the coming years as well as serious issues with water supply as well so these are some real concrete concerns that could affect everyday life. And this is all really being tied to climate change, according to experts. Really now, we are looking at those immediate solutions to deal and cope with the heat that we're seeing today. But as this becomes a new norm for much of Europe, there will be, of course, a need to focus on those long-term solutions in order to deal with these extreme temperatures. Yes, short-term and the medium-term plans required. Nada Bashir, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, for more on this, CNN meteorologist Chad Myers joins us now. Chad, what does it look like? Red. I it can looks see behind hot. you. 
It, it does. Yeah. It does. And, and you, you, you put the climate change words out there. And, you know, Julia, we would have had a heat wave anyway without climate change. But the heat wave would have been 35. With climate change, that may have bumped it to the 40-degree range. And that's what we're seeing already. Some spots already in the middle and upper 30s just after lunch hour there. Temperatures are going to be high. The red alert, the first one ever for the U.K., obviously very hot in France, Portugal, Spain. The Iberian Peninsula has been dreadfully hot, approaching 43 at times. Here are some of the numbers here. Uh, Down into Madrid today, 41 All of those people. And these numbers that you see behind me are in the shade. When you step outside and you stand in the sunshine, you feel more heat than that. Talked about the drought. Very few countries in the UK, from the UK all the way to the EU, have not been experiencing some type of drought, especially in the growing regions. That's why we're so hot. If we had a lot of moisture on the ground, we would get clouds. The clouds would block out the sun and we wouldn't get to 40. But because it is dry, because it has been dry and the air isn't that humid, that's why the air is getting so hot across Europe. Now, it's only a couple of days for northwestern Europe, but across the south, this doesn't change at all. We sent a crew to the Po River in northern Italy to take a look at the Po. There's very little water in the Po River right now because there wasn't a lot of snow melt, snowfall across parts of the Alps this year. So another thing going on, it's just one thing after another. It's hot in the U.S. as well. Cold in some spots across the world, don't get me wrong, but we will approach 104 degrees here across most of Fahrenheit across the U.S., which is somewhere in that 40-degree range. This is what we're going to be dealing with. And it isn't so much that one or two days. This has been already weeks And morning low temperatures aren't getting down below about 32. So your house isn't even cooling down at night when you open the windows. Now, most of the areas here that will approach 100 100 Fahrenheit will have air conditioning. The U.K., only 5%. The estimate right now is only 5% of homes in the U.K., have any type of air conditioning whatsoever. Yeah, Yeah, that is truly the problem. The long-term effects of it not cooling down at night. The good news is in 48 hours for London, this is long gone. It's all over and everything, everybody just will forget about it. But for the next couple of days, it could be dangerous if you're outside or inside a home that doesn't have any type of wind blowing, no fans on. Got to take care of the kids, the pets, and the elderly. Julia. Yeah, and that's a fascinating statistic as well. Just 5% of, of yeah. homes and buildings with air conditioning in the UK is one of the things I love about being in America, Chad. And um, also, super important context. We would have had a heat wave anyway, but they're just becoming more fierce that's and more right. frequent. Yeah, that's right. more Chad, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you, Chad yeah. Myers there. China also facing a dramatic heat wave of its own, just as authorities turn up the heat once again with the nation's zero COVID policy. It's back to mass testing and lockdowns in certain localities after the nation reported the highest number of COVID cases since May. CNN's Blake Essig has the latest on both. The combination of extreme heat and China's zero COVID strategy aren't doing its already strained healthcare system any favors. Now, the good news is that temperatures are cooling, but it's still going to be hot 
for days to come. Now it means healthcare workers wearing full hazmat suits and millions of people who at times uh, have waited outside in line for several hours in order to get tested for COVID will continue enduring extreme temperatures. Now, nationwide over the weekend, more than a thousand new locally transmitted cases were reported across the country and at least 16 provinces have reported new local cases in the past two weeks. Uh, that includes the beach resort town of Beihai in southern China, where a snap lockdown over the weekend has left more than 2,000 tourists stranded. Now, in the region, more than 500 cases have been reported this past week. As a result, uh, the local government has locked down parts of the city, ordered mass testing, banned residents from leaving their home, and shut down all entertainment venues. In the special administrative region of Macau, uh, China's Las Vegas, authorities have extended its ongoing lockdown and mass testing through Friday, meaning all non-essential businesses like casinos uh, have had their operations suspended. And in Shanghai, uh, many people are worried uh, about another round of mass lockdowns after 17 new cases were identified in the past 24 hours. Uh, in an effort to stem community spread, uh, the city government said that they will require residents across 10 of the city's districts uh, in some smaller areas to undergo two rounds of testing for COVID-19 over a three-day period starting this week. Now, whether it's daily testing or lockdowns, uh, China's zero COVID strategy continues to impact people's lives around the nation. Blake Essig, CNN, Tokyo. And the sweltering heat is bringing Europe's energy crisis closer to boiling point too. Consumers ramping up their power on aircon and cooling units have sent natural gas prices surging. Supplies are already squeezed. The key Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Russia remains offline until Thursday at least. Anna Stewart joins me now. Wow. OK, so we're conflating a few stories there that are very much interconnected. Let's start, start with Nord Stream 1. It's been offline for 10 days of maintenance. It's a crucial pipeline getting gas from Russia to Europe. And the big fear is that the Russians will decide not to turn it back on. And Thursday will be the big moment where we find out what happens in that story. There have been so many pivotal moments in terms of Russian energy in Europe. And this week really is a big one because this is the biggest Russian pipeline taking gas from Russia to Europe. Uh, normally, sort of pre uh, the invasion of Ukraine, it would transport around 55 billion cubic meters a year. I mean, to put that into perspective, that's about 40 percent of the Russian gas that Europe gets. But of course, already supplies had been cut on this pipeline before this big sort of offline maintenance. It was cut by 60 percent by Russia relating to a very complicated issue on turbines and sanctions. At least that was the reason Russia gave. But yes, now it is offline. It has been. It will have been for 10 days when it comes to Thursday. Big concerns. Will it get switched back on? And if it doesn't, what does that mean for Europe? Essentially, that points towards almost a complete cutoff of Russian gas and the threat of a deep recession. Just looking at energy prices, Julie, you can see how nervous investors are at this stage, even though we are in the height of summer, when typically, of course, energy demands are quite low. But we can see that there were a huge spike, of course, for energy futures for the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but also look how they are creeping up and ever more volatile. Julia? Yeah, and this was going to be a critical three months where Europe hoped to rebuild storage capacity ahead of what's expected to be a challenging winter. And as I mentioned in the introduction, what we're instead seeing is a ramping up of electricity demand to to power aircon units due to the heat wave. So it's the worst of both. And actually, the IEA is warning today that capacity needs to be cut in the short mm. term in order to provide for the winter. 
I mean, a really strong comments actually just in from the head of the IEA, who essentially said uh, enough has not been done, especially on the demand side. And he went on to say, in my view, it is much better to take steps now to prepare for winter than to leave the well-being of hundreds of millions of people in European economies at the mercy of the weather or even worse, to give unnecessary extra leverage to President Vladimir Putin of Russia. Essentially, at this stage, European gas storage facilities are around two thirds full. That is better than where they were this time last year, but they're not where they really need to be, particularly with the threat of a complete cutoff of Russian energy. More needs to be done on the demand side. And of course, right now is the worst time with a heat wave, people using air conditioning, those lucky enough to have them. They're energy intensive. We will, of course, also get more power from solar. Perhaps that can offset it. But really, I mean, what we're pointing to here from experts all over is the fact that households and businesses need to use less. And if they don't, they may be forced to with rationing from European governments come winter. Julia? Yes, we've been warned. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Sri Lanka's acting president has declared a new state of emergency ahead of Parliament's vote to pick the next leader. Ranil Vikramsinghe, a top contender for the job, but protesters want him out. He says he declared the emergency to prevent more public unrest. The acting leader also says the government has almost concluded negotiations with the IMF to bail out the beleaguered nation. CNN's Will Ripley shows us how people are coping with the financial uncertainty. I'm in Colombo at one of the few gas stations that's actually pumping petrol right now. We had to drive around past at least two or three before we found this one. And we could spot the fact that it was open because the line was stretching not even around the block, but like several blocks down. In Sri Lanka these days, they say petrol is more precious than gold, which explains the heavily armed guards. I've never seen anything quite like this. We're, we've been talking to people who, waiting in these lines, some of them waiting as long as six days. Like 19-year-old Anuda Gunasingha. I'm Will. He just graduated from high school. How long have you been waiting here? Since Monday, like six days. Six days? Yeah. So how do you live? What do you do? Sleep in the car. My dad's here, so we basically switch like two days each in the queue. Like pretty much everyone else here, He's been doing this for months. People shouldn't have to do this, you know? Just suffer in a queue for so long and then just get fuel for their basic necessities. Do you have any trust left in politicians in your government? None, none, none at all. They stole money by fooling us and then we are the ones who have to suffer while they have they lead luxury life. All right, give me a second. Yeah, sure. The fuel ran out three cars before he made it to the pump. He has to wait two more days. The price is so expensive. It has skyrocketed because their fuel is in such short supply. So people are spending, in a lot of cases, almost their entire income just to fuel the vehicle that they use to get around, to make a living. It's hard to imagine that people have been living like this for so long here. You can understand when you stand in the midst of all of this mayhem, the anger the anger on the streets here from people who just want to be able to live a normal life and don't want to have to spend days waiting in line for something basic, like fuel, like food, like medicine. In the U.S. state of Texas, lawmakers have released a scathing report critical of police response to that deadly school massacre in Uvalde back in May. 
The report says the nearly 400 officers who responded to Rob Elementary displayed, quote, an overall lackadaisical approach. It took an agonizing 77 minutes for them to confront the shooter. 19 children and two teachers lost their lives. And straight ahead on First Move, changing the face of modern warfare, how Turkey is becoming a major player with drone technology. We speak to one of Ukraine's top suppliers. Plus, helping small retailers achieve big things, we'll hear from Yula, the Indonesian e-commerce startup, next. Welcome back to First Move. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired two senior government officials, citing accusations of treason. The president said he's lost faith in their leadership after many of their subordinates were accused of treason and collaborating with Russia. He did not say whether the fired officials themselves are under investigation. Everyone who, together with him, was part of a criminal group that worked in the interests of the Russian Federation will also be held accountable. It is about the transfer of secret information to the enemy and other facts of cooperation with the Russian special services. Meanwhile, videos on social media show large explosions in the Russian-occupied Kherson region. The arrival of high-precision long-range weapons from Western allies has helped Ukraine target Russian supply lines and storage sites. And as the Ukrainian foreign minister appeals for more firepower, weaponized drones are playing a crucial role in shaping the conflict. This one was built in Turkey by a company called Baika, which began as an automotive supplier and is now the country's leading maker of unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs. Ukraine has purchased more than 20 of the TB2 models with orders for more. The company also donated a drone following crowdfunding campaigns in Lithuania, which we'll talk about shortly. On the ground, Ukrainian troops celebrate these unmanned weapons as a symbol of resistance. These soldiers even performed a song praising them. Haluk Bayraktar is Baikar's CEO, and he joins us now. Haluk, great to have you with us. Um, how does it feel to have crowdfunding taking place in order to buy your equipment and, and soldiers singing songs about your technology? It's, it seems pretty humbling to me. Uh, hello, hello, Julia. Yeah, actually, you know, we are actually proud and it's very touching for us to be uh, one of the symbols of this big resistance of Ukraine. And as you know, Ukraine is under very heavy aggression and disproportionate uh, attack, uh, attacking its civilian structures, its culture and everything. So we as Baikar, we are developer, developer and manufacturer of this unmanned technologies and uh, this, this UAV system, Bayraktar TB2 has become one of the symbols and it's, we are actually uh, proud to be, uh, to be part of it. And on that regard, uh, we have donated and to these campaigns and we delivered free of charge of our uh, unmanned systems, Bayraktar TB2s, to, the, to these campaigns, actually. Just talk to us about the technology and what makes TB2 so effective in, in this kind of situation. Yes, I mean, Bayraktar TB2 is a uh, medium-altitude, long-endurance platform, which is capable of flying fully autonomously. And it has been fielded since the last seven years. It's a very operationally proven, robust uh, system. Uh, it, has, it can fly in all sorts of environments, and it has a very high-end uh, autonomy features, technological features, 
and its price uh, performance to price ratio of this system is very high. It's a field proven system and it's a very practical and under all sorts of highly electronically jammed environments, it has uh, resistance and it has proved itself onto many different type of enemy targets. And in that regard, it's a valuable asset for any military as a force multiplier uh, element. Uh, uh, and it, 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 it allows you to do uh, long range surveillance and uh, high endurance and you don't carry a pilot so you don't risk any human lives with it and it's a very important element for countries to protect their homelands and to establish security and peace uh, in their homelands. I read recently I think it was Middle East I suggested it was your drones that the Ukrainian forces used to target the Russian oil depot at the at the end of April. So it flew into to Russian territory. Can you give us any sense of whether or not it was your drones that were used in, in that operation? And is that kind of the capabilities that they, they provide? Yeah, right. You know, um, with Ukraine, we have a, uh, years of cooperation mm. and strong bonds we have established together. And in that regard, before the war, Ukraine uh, was operating Bayraktar TB2s. It was established within their Air Force and Navy. So they, they, are, they already have a fleet and using and operating these drones. And these drones not only gives you surveillance and reconnaissance capability, but they have precision munitions on them. So they can uh, engage in a very precise manner with the targets, actually. So in that regard, we as well follow, follow from the social media and the media. Uh, it has... You know, behind the enemy lines, this this platforms has given very good results, uh, actually. So we, you know, all, we we follow it as you do. So uh, it has proved itself there as well. And the Russians have long been concerned about drone capabilities. They've been mentioned many times during this war as well. And there's two things that I would love to get your perspective on. One, the the concentration of of Russian forces now in the east. Of Ukraine, does that make using drone technology more complicated simply because they have a better sense of, of protecting the skies themselves and, and perhaps could, could take a drone out of the sky? And have they increased and improved their weaponry to be able to, to tackle these drones anyway? Actually, you know, one of the reasons that Bayraktar TB2 became a, a symbol uh, for the resistance uh, for the free and sovereign Ukraine is that the whole fleet of Bayraktar TB2 was alive since the uh, day zero of the war. So they kept flying all the time. Uh, and, you know, we have, uh, you know, huge experience and Ukrainian operators are well skilled and uh, so that they are operating these drones on all sorts of environments. Uh, but as you see, the, you know, Ukraine is facing a very disproportionate aggression. So, you know, you need, in order to to resist to it, uh, you know, UAVs, drone technologies, yes, they are uh, key elements, force multipliers, but, uh, you know, you need a lot of different assets and items uh, to tackle this, uh, this thing. Obviously, Turkey has a well-established trade relationship with, with Ukraine, more broadly. It also has a relationship with Russia, too. Um, Haluk, I just wondered whether you would consider or have supplied Russia with, with this technology, too. And how you think about that at this moment in time? Actually, you know, as I have mentioned, Turkey and Ukraine 
has a strategic level of relationship, especially on the field of uh, aerospace and defense. So it's it it's the years of efforts, and Turkey is uh, supporting Turkey is supporting Ukraine with this armed drone technology, and we as Turkey, uh, you know, we are procuring from Ukraine as well uh, turbine engines uh, for our drones as well. So we we build a win-win relationship model with Ukraine, which benefits uh, two countries. So in that regard, we you know we uh, solely support uh, Ukraine on, on on this technology and. Uh, this this relationship gives us it's a uh, complementary uh, complementary relationship between the countries actually. I understand, Haluk, and it went to the point of you even donating drones. But what about Russia? Would you supply Russia? Actually, you know, we we don't we have not uh, done such a thing, but uh, we have not uh, delivered or supplied them with anything, but. Uh, you know, uh, we will as well never do uh, such a thing uh, because we want, uh, you know, we, we support Ukraine, uh, support its sovereignty and support its, uh, uh, you know, resistance for its independence, actually. Haluk, thank you. I, I, sorry I pushed you on that, but I, I wanted to get a definitive answer and you gave it to me. Um, Ten million dollars? Is that what one of these drones costs? And, and are you providing them a discount? I read that you are providing them at a 30 um, percent off a third off discount. Can you give us any clarity on on the cost here and what your order book looks like? Because this has been a huge showcase for your for your technology too. Right, right. Actually, you know, uh, Bayraktar TB2 right now has been exported to more than 22 countries. And on these campaigns, you know, Lithuania started these campaigns. They collected about uh, $6 million, but we uh, we donated them a total free of charge, so we didn't get paid for anything. We just delivered them one uh, UAV. And then Ukraine itself started campaign to, to procure three Bayraktar TB2s. Hundreds of thousands of people applied to these campaigns, and we were really touched, uh, touched by it. And we as a company, we wanted to show that in, the, in, the, in such times of such a big scale war, we are not after maximizing our revenues or profits, but rather we are after maximizing uh, our support for Ukraine and support for their fight for their independence. And we, we are really uh, praying for, for a just resolution and a lasting peace, actually. So in that regard, we wanted to make this, uh, this donation uh, as well to be part of it. I understand, sir. And, and I know you at the company have a lot more going on. You're looking at um, drones carrying people one day and AI and all sorts of things. So come back on soon and we'll talk about some of the fun things as well that you've, you've got going on at the company as well. Um, great to get your perspective, sir. Thank you. Haluk there, the CEO of Baycar. Thank, Thank you. you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Monday as we head into the dog days of summer. Investors taking a bite out of stocks in a good way, as you can see, for the second straight session. Tech looking strong after its near 2% rally on Friday as well. Boeing, a big blue chip winner. The aerospace giant soaring more than 5% after announcing a sizable 737 MAX jet order from Delta. 
And helping the market move today, less dread for 100 Fed members pushing back against fears of an unprecedented 1% hike at their next policy meeting next week. Markets have been anticipating the worst after last week's blistering inflation prints. Expectations, however, for a less draconian U.S. central bank helping take some pressure off the U.S. dollar, too, which is losing ground today against the euro. The currencies hit parity briefly last week. The European Central Bank expected to raise interest rates for the first time in over a decade on Thursday. Now, in earnings news, Goldman Sachs rallying after beating on earnings and revenues and boosting its dividend to boot. Bank of America higher, too, after reporting mixed results. The banking giants wrapping up a pretty mixed earnings season overall. And Paula Monica is with us to go through it. Paul, great to have you with us. Um, I think Bank of America was a similar story to, to JP Morgan and to Citi. The investment banking side of the business was a letdown, all the uncertainty over a future deal making. But the consumer business was boosted by higher interest rates and um, quite surprising strength, I think, for the U.S. consumer. Yeah, market volatility, Julia, obviously has had its impact on the deal making side of the big banks uh, business. But consumers are chugging along, even though we have all these worries about inflation and a possible recession down the road, a slowing economy. I think that consumers still remain pretty resilient. And we're seeing that with those blockbuster retail sales numbers that came out on Friday. And I think the banks are confirming that as well. Consumers seem to be willing to add on to credit card balances, even though interest rates are going up. How long that's going to remain the case, of course, is an open question. But for now, I think the big banks and Goldman Sachs, too. I mean, remember, they have this Marcus division now that is a you know consumer-oriented digital bank. And consumer business for Goldman Sachs was one of the bright spots hitting a you know record revenue in their first quarter, in their second quarter. I love that you went there because that was some of the data that I pulled out from last week. Um, spending on Chase credit cards up 21%. City cards increased 16%. Then I look at mortgage originations down 46% at Wells Fargo, uh, sorry, down 36% at Wells, down 46% at, at, at JP Morgan. Um, it's really tough to get a picture of what's going on in the US economy. When you look at the jobs market, it looks incredibly strong. When you look at other parts of the business, there's a real sense of caution. Paul, did you feel recessionary pulses from, from these earnings? Because I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't just yet either, Julia. The big question, I think, is going to continue to be how significant will the housing market slow down and will there be shades of 2008 when we had a housing meltdown being one of the primary reasons for big banks struggling and the market and economy melting down. I think the good news now is that most Oh, just as he was getting warmed up on that, we'll uh, we'll reconvene on that conversation. There's definitely warning signs, but certainly not um, across the board. Fascinating. Paula Monica, thank you for that, sir. OK, up next, Indonesia's small businesses are going digital with a little help from a Bezos-backed startup, Ula. We speak to the CEO next.
Welcome back to First Move and empowering small business to do big things. That's the mission of Indonesia's startup Ula. The e-commerce marketplace allows family-owned kiosk businesses to digitize many processes. It provides an app through which they can manage capital, inventory and delivery. It launched in 2020 and business surged, as you would expect, during the pandemic. Joining us now is Nippon Mir. He's the CEO of Ula. Great to have you on the show. Just start by explaining the vision of Ula. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're you know, we're we're an Indonesia-focused B2B e-commerce company. Uh, what that means is, and I'm trying to I'm, uh, I'm trying to explain a little bit in terms of the millions of kiosks and retail shops that are around the neighborhoods of uh, of Indonesia. These are small mom and pop stores that are selling grocery and other items to their neighborhoods. Uh, they're now coming into the ambit of the digital world. We see them using smartphones, we see them using apps such as YouTube, TikTok, and so on, and we felt, well, the next frontier is commerce. Uh-huh. And they're, they're incredibly resilient as a segment, and personally for me, having worked in e-commerce, uh, I know that they offer advantages which we don't normally see in either big retail companies or in big e-commerce companies. By marrying their advantages to the world of technology, we, f- we want to create a new form of retail that looks different from what we've seen in the evolution of what we've seen in the US or China, for example. In what way? I, I get what you're saying. And we're talking about lots of these little kiosk businesses that traditionally only have people walking up to them and then they buy what they can see. So the idea of being able to expand your product offering and digitize how you're even running inventory is a huge opportunity. But why is that any different from what you see in the United States, for example, or in, in retail in, in China? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful question. From when, when you imagine the small mom and pop store in a place like Indonesia, uh, they're really tiny, and most of the places these stores are operating from are owner-owned and run uh, properties, meaning that they don't pay rents, they don't have uh, they don't have large armies of employees. They're literally micro entrepreneurs, small families running small shops. Uh, they have barely any air conditioning or uh, any utility bills or taxes to pay. So they're incredibly cost efficient. And the second thing that they have going for them is the neighborhood relationships that they have. They literally know which person lives in which house, who has which kid going to which school, and the level of detail is so personal, which a Walmart or a Costco might, you know, kill to have. So uh, it's it's those advantages have been there forever. What's changing now is that they're adopting technology to do their own commerce. And that has three elements for us. One, helping them source better. Two, helping them manage working capital better because at the end of the day, they have to carry inventory. Mm. And three, can we help them aggregate demand in their neighborhood better using digital means? I mean, you launched this in 2020. It's either the best or the worst time in terms of capturing what you were trying to achieve because it was suddenly on on steroids in terms of this shift to digitization and and trying to maintain a business for for many of these people too. Um, Okay, so, I mean, we're only talking about, what, 18 months worth of data, but what can you tell me about some of the growth and the improvements that you've seen for for the people that are on the are using the platform, and and give us the numbers. How many people are using it? What kind of growth have you seen? Sorry, that was a lot of questions, but now I'm very excited. Well, I'm I'm used to those, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, 
uh, numbers have been pretty strong. Uh, and I think at some level, even we were initially uh, surprised because, but then when you think about it, it's pretty obvious. Uh, a store is actually an offline entity and you'd imagine that in the pandemic, they would have shut down. But then on the other hand, they are the only or the primary source of daily necessities to their neighborhood. And they're run by human beings who are equally afraid as any of us of catching the COVID in, uh, in 2020. So we saw maybe a faster than what we had expected adoption. Uh, and what's interesting for us is that it hasn't particularly eased after the COVID restrictions ended, which means that it may have caused a structural shift in the way consumption is happening, or at least in our segment, the consumption is happening. Uh, what we've also seen is uh, the stickiness element that comes. So in terms of numbers, we've, we're, we're now have about give or take 200,000 odd registered stores uh, or different entities that are trying to do a reselling business. And, these, uh, and, and a lot of the stores are finding the uniqueness of maybe what I would call the Amazon moment, just being an ex-Amazon person myself, of being able to get a lot of selection, different products all on one platform delivered straight to their store. So they no longer need to go to crowded markets, which is where the problem with the pandemic had happened because point like, uh, well, it wasn't even possible. And even if you did try it, you ran the risk of getting COVID. Yeah, okay. I mean, there's so much in there. Um, I guess the obvious question, and I have millions of them now, is how specifically do you make money? And our viewers will notice that I keep putting up on the screen that you raised an incredible amount of money, $140 million through this phase for, for expansion. Um, how is the conversation with some of those big investors, and they're incredibly well-known investors in the region, and Jeff Bezos' investment fund was one of them. Um, how is the conversation about profitability, expansion, evolving at a time when we're looking around the world and wondering if we're going into a, a global slowdown? Because that's an additional challenge for a, for a startup that's growing fast and specifically in this region. No, absolutely. So we've had we've been privileged and I'm, I would say, you know, on air, I'm very grateful to the people who decided to back our vision. Uh, it's definitely a long uh, period vision. Uh, to be able to realize that. Uh, so very, very grateful for backing us. Uh, we've raised about $140 million over three rounds. Uh, and some of the investors have been uh, pretty famous names. Uh, but I think a lot of that was because of what people saw in the data, what people saw in the vision. And there is a real shot at saying, okay, this is a new way retail may get done in emerging markets. Now, I don't uh, I feel it's too premature for Ula to say that we are the ones who will shape that future. Uh, I hope that day comes, but uh, candidly, uh, we're heading in that direction. Uh, as far as profitability is concerned, we're profitable in pockets, as most startups should be doing, is uh, knowing which are the profitable pockets, amplifying those, and over time, trying and testing and maybe winding down the parts that don't turn profitable as much. So, so far, what we've done has been execute to a brick by brick plan we never really we never really had that blitzscaling thing because we are an offline b2b business mm. uh, meaning that we literally have to go district by district neighborhood by neighborhood there is no way for us to carpet bomb with digital ads or whatever uh, so we do have to build brick by brick and that helps us stay sober in times when things are up or when times and things are down yes level-headed but excited, I think, about um, the growth of this business going forward. Come back and talk to us soon, please. It's going to be fascinating to, uh, to track your progress. Nipa Mira, the CEO of ULA, said thank you.
Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break. This 10-year-old is helping Ukraine by playing a game. This champion of checkers is putting her mind to a great cause. The details next. Welcome back to First Move and now to a small girl with a very big heart. A 10-year-old Czechos champion is taking on all comers in a quest to support her country and raise money for Ukraine's army. CNN's Alex Markart took her on and was roundly destroyed. Watch this. At a small folding table outside a busy Kyiv shopping center, Valeria Yezhova, just 10 years old, quickly and methodically dismantles every opponent who sits down at her checkers board. Defeated, they drop money onto the growing pile of bills in her box, next to a sign that reads, we are helping the Ukrainian army. What many who are playing her don't know is that for Valeria, checkers is no simple hobby. She's the world champion for her age, taking home the trophy last summer. I really wanted to help our army and soldiers, and I asked my mother what I should do, she said. My mom asked me what I'm good at. I said, playing checkers. In nine days outside this shopping center, she raised more than $700. She then presented it to the head of a foundation that buys equipment for the military, Sergei Pritula, a celebrity and activist whom Valeria calls her hero. He broke down in tears. She says that at first, people hesitated to play her. Then, as they watched her beat everyone, more and more stepped up to try their luck. Have you ever lost any of the games while you've been doing this? I've never lost here, she says. Word quickly spread about the young champion doing her part for her country. When this man heard from his wife that Valeria was playing nearby, he quickly left work and ran over. Valeria is already a legend here, he says. You'd rather lose to her. She's doing a great job helping the Ukrainian army. She's probably touched the whole of Ukraine. Other kids from her checkers club have followed Valeria's lead. Ukraine's children feel this war profoundly. You think about the war a lot, or are you just trying to live your normal life? I would like to live a normal life, but during the war, it's difficult, she says. Of course I'm scared. There are a lot of negative feelings. The defeated ask for photos. With the growing star, Valeria is poised, calm, and all too happy to oblige. Shall we play a game? Yes. <laughs> she okay. also obliges me. Uh, wife first. Wife first. With zero hesitation in her moves. I forgot about going backwards. <laughs> as my pieces fly off the board. Now there's nothing I can do. Uh, thanks for playing. Thank you for destroying me. Thank you very much for the game. Thank it was an you. honor to play with a champion. Thank you. Alex Markward, CNN, Kiev. And proof that heroes come in all shapes and sizes. What a beautiful laugh. Okay, and finally, better late than never. It might have taken 20 years to walk down the aisle, but Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez have finally married in Las Vegas. In a note to her fans, the actress and singer wrote in part, quote, love is a great thing, maybe the best of things, and worth waiting for. The couple met on a movie set in 2001 and quickly became magnets for the paparazzi during much of the early 2000s. They announced their first engagement in 2002, but split two years later. We wish them all the very best second time around. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. 
and I'll see you later. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.